We are I. All right, everybody, we're, we're sitting down. This is part three um, with Sohail and Susan. And um, before we kind of open this, we left off on part two that, you know, Sohail just got back from Canada and, you know, him and his wife found out and his four children found out that, that she had cancer. This is what Sohail was explaining to us. Um, before I kick this off, you know, I just want to do like a little bit of a recap so that it kind of sets the tone for this because obviously this would be devastating news, you know, for any family, you know, to hear, especially when you're just coming back from a foreign country and you just want to kind of get settled, you know, maybe in a little bit of regular everyday life. But, um, you know, like let's kind of like walk through the steps up into this point, you know, like, you know, we have a family, you know, in Iran that decides to uproot themselves and be able to move to Holland you know, figure out in Holland that it's just not a place that is going to be, you know, suitable to their needs and they have to move to Switzerland. You know, amongst all the things that happen in Switzerland, you know, they find that, you know, all of their money and all of their assets and everything have been embezzled by the people that who are entrusted to be able to keep these assets safe for them. So then, so Hale and his siblings get left in Switzerland while the mom and dad move back to Iran to try to be able to fix this problem and to try to be able to understand it. You know, then for grade 12, Sohail and his family have to be, or his siblings have to go back to Iran where Sohail only knows um, French. He has to reteach himself, you know, Farsi amongst a teacher who would rather cut his arm off than to be able to help this man, you know, persevere and actually, you know, pass grade 12. You know, he's studying underneath street lamps with other kids because they don't have electricity in their home and miraculously pulls off, you know, this graduating grade 12, you know, moves away, you know, goes to France and, you know, participates at the University of Dijon, you know, away from his family in a program that where 95% of the kids are never even going to pass it. And the other 5% are probably not even going to understand the information, you know, that's being presented to them, you know, but then again, so he perseveres and, you know, conquers that class. Then his whole family moves to Toronto and, you know, he basically, he gets his engineering degree and then gets called, has this internal calling to be able to go to Quebec, goes to Quebec, takes this blind interview, you know, and then turns out accepting like a dream job for him, then happens to be able to meet a spiritual leader along the way in this city, which says, there's a calling for you to be able to go to the Congo and help the pygmy people. And it completely uproots his life and his wife's life in a place like Canada, a place that people flock to and dream to be able to get. And then now he uproots his life and his wife's life and moves back to a place that people are running from goes there and just connects with all these communities, all these people, you know, in the middle of this jungle that he's never been to before, his wife's never been to before. He's never taught or educated people anywhere at any time in his life except for just maybe small social networks. You know, has designed an educational system and process, you know, with a team to be able to educate people so that they will be successful for generations to come you know, successfully brings electricity to 500 villages in the Congo and for these uh, pygmy people, 
which is going to again completely change their lives. You know, the UN calls out for him and asks him to be able to help. So then, you know, he decides to be able to uproot now not only his life and his wife's life, but now there are four children that were born in the Congo. And they go to um, Thailand, you know, because they need to be able to get this visa to be able to enter Laos. At the same time, he gets his contract with the UN revoked. He decides this is not going to stop me because you know, I have such a connection with my fellow man that I know these people need me and I'm going to go there anyway no matter how dangerous people may you know, dictate this environment to be. I need to go there to help. Sits in the consulate for three months because they refuse him entry into this country because they think he has malicious intent being there. He says, no, I'm here for the people. I'm going to survive this situation. I'm going to be here. I'm going to persevere through that as well. You know, gets into this country, helps all of these people, builds in a massive social network of support and community, and changes again these people's lives. There's hundreds of villages and hundreds of communities, you know, in Laos. And then because of this and building this following, you know, stirs up the government and the system that they believe to be true in this world and decide to be able to kick him out of the country with his family. They take away all of his assets and he perseveres through that as well. And his wife and his children are out on the street and they have nothing and they don't know where to be able to turn, you know, for anything at any time. They end up living in um, a haunted house that has been abandoned for 13 years with absolutely nothing. You know, and for all of us that have kids to imagine that you would pitch a tent in a living room to be able to safeguard your children from the animals who are living in this house while they sleep so that they are protected um, has brought like a tear and it's choking me up as I say it because I could never imagine putting myself or my girls through it. I just think it's incredible. And um, this is the nature of this man, you know, through all this, still gets this money from the World Bank after, you know, reaching out to his God, the person that he connects with most for guidance and receives this money and then turns around and builds roads to be able to connect people and community and allows this country to be able to survive and persevere and stays there for years to be able to help them. Then uproots his family again and comes back to Canada only to be able to find out that his wife has cancer. Um, welcome back to the show, Swahil. Hello, everybody. Um, it's a very difficult uh, return to Canada. Uh, the second day we arrive in Canada, we decide to go to the hospital because Monique had felt that something was not right. And um, they told us that she had breast cancer and um, that unfortunately it had advanced to a level that was very difficult to address. But um, Monique had family members who also had breast cancer and unfortunately all of them who had similar cancer of different nature had passed away and they were kind of the body parts were kind of uh, chopped out for one reason, for surgical and so on. So she wanted to have a, a peaceful life and wanted to be healed through natural medicine. And that natural medicine was there. She wanted that way and no other way. And uh, she was one of the greatest artists. She was the sixth, seventh generation 
a French Canadian artist, painter, musician, um, a voice, heavenly uh, hand uh, that would design and create artwork that were from the other world. And she had a sense of beauty. Beauty was the center of everything she did. Everything had to become beautiful. And wherever she went, she beautified that place. And you could see the sense of beauty and harmony and love that she would create. Um, by the way, this beauty sense of art and so on stayed within the genes of the four kids who all have this unbelievable artistic talents and they actually use it for wonderful things. Um, after we learned that she had cancer, we tried a lot of natural health uh, products and uh, ways and means. And um, at that time, uh, our knowledge of natural health was not very advanced. Um, we tried and um, we saw that it's not really progressing well. And we heard that somewhere in Mexico, at the border of San Diego, there was a clinic. And that clinic had amazing uh, solution that were not as hard as the one um, that was uh, about 19 years ago, 20 years ago. Um, so we, despite of all the challenges, at that time I was involved in a very, very large uh, project that was an invention of a product, of a chemical product that was actually so safe that it will um, clean up, um, for example, grain in Fusarium. There is a sickness that causes billions of dollars to Canadian farmers uh, called Fusarium disease. And that, that, um, that uh, kind of chemical, which is naturally driven, but it's a chemical, when they I sent it to actually Abbotsford for testing at the research center. They found that it had a solution to fusarium and grain and all the food uh, were, would benefit from it. So at that time, uh, one of the largest Canadian families uh, approached us and said that, well, we have so many silos and so many cooperative movements and so many farmers. You should, um, we are ready to put $2 million right away into that. But at that time, I had to make a choice between continuing the project or taking care of Monique, who was sick. And uh, although the doctors everywhere basically said there is no hope, no recovery, um, I had to make a very hard choice. And uh, despite that we had come back from so many years of work in Laos and uh, having depleted our resources, financial resources, I decided that we will not take the money and uh, move to San Diego and then cross the border in Tijuana. And there was a medical center. They were wonderful. They did magical transformation for different forms of cancer. But unfortunately, at that time, they told us you're just coming at the time where it's December 
and they are going to go on vacation, the doctors, and there would be nobody to follow up on the treatment but the local nurses. And unfortunately, local nurses were not well trained. And um, so anyway, through some infection, she passed away and it was a drama because with four kids, the youngest was only eight years old and who was my son um, and my daughter. Uh, Anyway, they were very young when she passed away. And um, so we were in San Diego and had to start from scratch our life. We had lost, they had lost their mother. And so um, through this, at that very time, I had to look for a job. And you are in a different country, you're in a different environment, you have a Canadian nationality in the US, now you have to look for a job. Nobody knows really who you are, what you do, and getting a job. And so I actually had the guts <laughs> to go to a patent office, um, a lawyer office, and said that, listen, I'm an inventor and I can write patents. And so he said, okay, why don't you work on, we'll test you. So they gave me some patent to write. And being very also creative, I had suggestions of how to improve those patents. But according to law, you are not allowed to put your input because then you become co-inventor. And that's with, (laughs) but somehow I helped a, a number of young inventors. Um, through that process, a friend of ours overheard that um, other people uh, needed patent advice and technology advice. And one of them was a young hacker, white hacker, (laughs) internet hacker, whose name was Jeremiah Grossman who became a big name, and he's one of the biggest names now in the internet world. But I just shared that through adversity. um, I offered, they approached me and asked if I would help them to, this young man had received, and that's, remember, this is 20 years ago, and uh, just years before that, he had received uh, games, computer games, and the internet was not much developed at that time, but Yahoo was number one company in the world at that time. And uh, this young man, Jeremiah, had uh, poked in, hacked in into Yahoo at the age of 16, already 17, 18, and, uh, and he informed Yahoo that actually you have holes in your system. And very interestingly, and he said, I'm just doing it out of love. I'm not uh, asking you any recognition. I'm just tell you that you have a hole in your system. And very interestingly, the founder later on, if he found that the founder of Yahoo contacted him personally, and say, oh, you you look very smart. Can you find more holes in our system? (laughs) And this young man actually found quite a number of holes into Yahoo. So they hired him as the youngest uh, uh, 
chief security officer of Yahoo. At the 20, at 23 years old, he was 160 million people. <laughs> but he was in a room and in a center in which hacking was increasing intensively. So he told them, listen, only computers can protect computers. But at that time, they said computers cannot become that smart that they will protect computers. So he said, well, I have no choice. The, the attacks are so heavy, it's impossible as human beings to do that. So he quit from Yahoo and came and then invited me to join him and together to create a new company. So with his friend who were coders, so through kind of mentoring and association and thinking and looking at the patterns and doing some kind of marketing, approaching friends and families and so on, we managed to sell the first product of White Hat Security. And that's the name of the company, White Hat Security. And uh, so it was an amazing. We sold the first um, software for protecting computers through computers um, at 10,000 US dollar. That was the first income of that company. That crystallized. Right away, Silicon Valley Bank came in and said, wow, that company is the future. <laughs> anyway, it became so big. At that time, I had to come back to Canada and I left that company. I stayed a board member for another one and a half year and then uh, got back into Canada involved with my own family, with the kids, uh, four kids. We have had a wonderful unity. We had to mourn uh, a lot and reflect upon life and uh, re-examine everything, work again, re-establish ourselves. And uh, anyway, um, over time, um, two of our kids got married, two girls got married, wonderful partner. So we continued. And uh, so I had the bounty of taking one of our kids to an international school called the Maxwell International Baha'i School in Shawnigan Lake in the island. And there I met Susan, my wonderful, beautiful wife. And um, so a whole new journey started then on. So she, Susan, is an extremely spiritual person. And um, we decided that we will go to China and help out. Uh, with the spiritual and the material education of the Chinese people. That decision was based on understanding that in time, Chinese, they are very beautiful people in China. And Chinese will play a major role in bringing peace in the world. At this time, uh, sometimes, you know, there are conflicts in the world, but despite of that, beyond looking from the fogs and the clouds of today's conflict between nations and races and cultures and so on, there is, in 1917, Abdu'l-Baha, the son of Baha'u'llah, said that 
Chinese have a very pure heart and they are free from deceit and among them there will be candles that of that will bring light of unity and love and peace to the world these people they will be amazing among them they will be rice people who will work for peace and unity and they will have a major role and that china will be the country of the future that is in 1917 at the time where China was at its lowest uh, uh, civilization um, period, because at that time the opium world of China, the crisis inside the country, and the war, the challenges they were facing, the whole world was looking at China as the sick country of Asia. But at that time, Abdul Baha saw into China as the country of the future and that the Chinese people will rise up and play a great role. Now, we, Susan and I, we decided that we'll go to China and find the Chinese that will have that spirit in which they will become peacemakers. They will become lovers of humanity because in every spot on planet Earth, we need peace lovers. And then if that spirit of love and unity is created, then we will have spots all over the world of loving citizens who will care about love, peace, and unity as one family, one planet. So that concept, um, spirit of desiring, being of service, and at the same time, the pollution of China, I was very much concerned. And the enormous amount of people who live in that country, their pollution influences us, our pollution influences them. Pollution has no limit. <laughs> Winds take pollution all over the world, and so we have to contribute to the betterment of the planet. And so we went to China, and uh, Susan got a job as English teacher, and I got a job as teaching environment protection at the university in Qingdao. And so I started to have classes on environmental protection, talking about technologies, but after a year and a half, I saw there's no point telling people, you have to walk the talk. You have to actually do technologies that are meaningful with the people, along with them. So I said, forget about teaching. I'm going to create a company. And we are going to design technologies to absorb the pollution of the air, the CO2, the emission, uh, greenhouse gases. And so at that time, as I was considering solution technologies in consultation with other friends, we discovered that algae actually is the solution. And that opened up a whole new world and a whole new era. There's about 100,000 species of algae. Each algae is actually a building block of one of the raw, raw ingredients of planet Earth. And this microbial world that we live in, that's the microbial world that is actually absorbing all the pollution that we are creating and is 
transforming it through photosynthesis, through the power of the sun, into the food chain, breaking it down into more absorbable, digestible um, molecules, and then that becomes the food chain of the next level of food or environment, but it's all a bacterial world that live, we live in. And that carbon was the center of everything because we have a carbon planet that we live on. And because of the carbon, the role of carbon, this is the greatest asset that humanity has. It's not a pollution. And we always say, oh, carbon pollution, oh, CO2 emissions, oh, methane gas. These are can be actually absorbed and be an asset of the greatest asset that we have. So we, at that moment, I started to develop the first technologies, work with the university, and then the Academy of Science of China. They got involved into it. They saw how this technology has enormous potentials. So we developed the first model of technology, tested, and then I saw, oh my God, this is the future. What was it like in, in China at that time? Like, were, um, because this is all like extremely progressive, and this was probably what about 15 years ago That's right. now? Um, like, what was that? Because you'd have to be around some people, some pretty progressive thinking to even like want to advance this technology, or like, was like pollution reduction even on China's radar back then? Like, you That's know, like, right. how, how important was it? to them to be able to see this through to volition with you? Well, for China, it was not the pollution that was concerned. They, they were looking for biofuel. They were looking for energy source because China is heavily, um, China generates only one sixth out of uh, its energy needs and the rest is imported. So they need a lot of energy sources and biofuel from algae are the key to our future and uh, the you see um, algae is actually what the the fuel of today petroleum product are algae that have been under pressure and heat transformed into fuel and the fuel that we are using is just algae and so if you go to the source instead of going through all these uh, billions years of waiting for, <laughs> you know, uh, carbon to transform. You just create an environment and it's called an ecosystem, a bioreactor, and you are able to actually transform. And this is um, for the last 10 years, I've been working on this technology because I feel that we finally, humanity, we are going to be totally able to control an environment, to um, be able to um, transform, uh, convert, and turn what is what we consider at this time pollution and uh, gas emissions into actual bioproducts that are extremely viable. So, like, how how does that process take place? Is it by way of like an like an algae farm or like? Um, like, like how could you walk us through the process? Like, even like we, you see like a vision of that, like, like how does that, that work? Okay. So basically, um, I have actually about 11 patents <laughs> on that subject. Yeah. Um, 
the reason I started to look at that is I saw I attended a number of international conferences in the US to educate myself and to try to understand what really it is about. Because every time I went to the US to this international conference, I saw that the brightest people of the of US and some from the world are coming to these large conferences and they are talking about actually our planet in the true sense but scientifically speaking and that actually algae is the building block of all the raw ingredients of planet earth so if you know how to grow algae you are able to produce anything in a very sustainable way you don't need to build um, cement uh, I would say mortar um, uh, manufacturing facilities, you know, with uh, building blocks, I mean, uh, with cement and factories that are concrete. The microbial world will do that work for you in a sustainable way. The microbial world is creating the bio-ingredient that humanity will need. And so, of course, not everything can be made of algae. We need corn, we need food, we need uh, many things. But the raw ingredient for proteins, the amino acid, all the uh, fibers, and almost everything, its origin comes from algae. If it has any life in it, and it has some carbon in it, there is algae ancestor. And so basically, if you are able to go back to the origin of life in the material sense, then you will see that algae played a major key. And so as I went to different universities and these conferences to educate myself visiting, I was invited a number of times to visit, for example, in Arizona. They had the Arizona State University, which is about 100,000 students and they said forget about Canada move to the US we'll give you all the money that you need establish your company here in Arizona and we'll give you the land we'll give you the building we'll give you the people just come and so they invited me to go there I went and they opened this kind of secret doors of research centers and so on to show me what they are doing, to show me that, well, they are quite advanced, it would be nice. So I said, okay, I visited. And I was amazed, astonished. There was at least, I would say, 500 students. Out of 100,000, it's not that much, but there was at least 500 students that were PhDs and master's degree. And they all were trying to program different algae species to do different raw ingredients of planet Earth, from food, medicine, from materials, fertilizers, from feed, animal feed, from the highest pharmaceutical advanced product that you can imagine. Uh, everything could be done at 1,000 times cheaper than today's method. And they were programming it and they were patenting it because they said that 
this is the key of the future. And so they were so eager in a race of being the first one to discover the way that they can manipulate genetically modified or use algae metabolically and create the raw ingredient of planet Earth. Then when I saw that, I got confirmation in myself that, oh, I'm in the right field. And this is actually going to be transforming the future and being very much in love with the environment and our blue planet. <laughs> I thought that, oh my God, finally humanity, we are going to come out. And most politicians have no clue that algae is actually the building block and the solution of our future. Most people actually, when you talk to them, they, they have no clue. And I hope that Canadian scientists will wake up a little bit and uh, they will listen to people who have had experience, tested, proven, and there is a huge UBC department who is very advanced in that. I hope that some attention will be given that, but we have the solution right now. And uh, out of these technologies, I actually developed a very large scale, highly scalable, extremely low cost system in which we can absorb the CO2 from the air. And uh, how it works is that algae, needs CO2 to grow. It needs it. So it loves CO2. And we have all this pollution of CO2. And we have stacks <laughs> that are, you know, throwing all the CO2 in the air. We just very easily, simply, I'm an engineer. So when I say easily, of course, you have to do some engineering steps toward it, but it's doable. Um, but you, you, you have the authority to be able to say it can be easily done on a magnitude of what you're talking about because of the change in the, what you've done with your life. So when you say it's easy, you have the authority to say that it's doable. Well, when you have done many, many, many technologies <laughs> in different countries in the world, you, you, you feel that this is actually not such a big challenging thing. It's something that nature has been doing it for 3.6 billion years, 4 billion years, 5 billion years. So we are just copying, mimicking what nature does, but we're just creating an environment, an ecosystem in which what nature has been doing and is continuing to do every day, we just create that environment in a controlled manner and you do exactly what nature does. So we are not inventing, we are just copying what the creator has already created. So we just create an environment. And so in that environment, we just put, for example, the, the gases that are emitted into the water, the water absorbs, the algae in that water needs that CO2. And with the agricultural residues that are wasted and are dangerous for our environment, we put that agriculture waste, animal waste, manure, and all the other waste that are dangerous, some even that are toxic, we put them into that water and we have the CO2 and the algae through the power of the photosynthesis of the solar power is able to break down all of this and rebuild it again and turn it into molecules that are extremely beneficial and useful to our planet Earth. So it's all done through the miracle of photosynthesis. The photon of the solar system 
are sent with powers to actually decompose and recompose, reorganize, reshape the molecule of our planet Earth. So it's all done through four billion years, five billion years of evolution. So we, we have, we're just observers of the phenomena. So basically these containers that we can create anywhere and grow algae. Now what we benefit from is that we say that, okay, we need jet fuel. Okay. What kind of pollution do you have? Oh, you have chicken <laughs> manure. Oh, you have pig manure. Oh, you have this manure. Oh, you have this pollution. Oh, you have this. We just said, okay, now what kind of emitters of CO2 we have? Oh, we have cement factories. Oh, we have different type of uh, industries who pollute a lot. Oh, fantastic. So let's create an environment. We put water there, a special pond system, extremely low cost, extremely low cost. I'm repeating because <laughs> it's sometimes we are creating for ourselves barriers that because the intention maybe is controlling, but at this time where we are in our planet, we have to help each other. We have to collaborate. We have to come together and make the future much better for our children and our <laughs> legacy that we're living of today to our grandchildren and great-grandchildren. But anyway, so the technology is available and it's not new that technology has been there. Why I am so attached to that technology is because I discovered that the first testing that was done on similar technology was done the year I was born, 1950. And it was in September, 1950, that the first experiment on photobioreactor on this technology was done. And I'm fascinated by that because I feel that there is a synergy between that technology and myself. <laughs> this has kind of powered and inspired us to go and advance this technology. And we did some experiment at UBC with a department of UBC. They fell in love with the technology. They are themselves extremely advanced in similar. And we are collaborators now. And we became our, my company established in 19, uh, in 2014, a company called Alga Bloom. Alga Bloom, <laughs> not Algae Bloom, but Alga Bloom. <laughs> because I believe that they are good blooming and bad blooming. When we put toxic into the ocean, the ocean naturally has to defend itself. And by blooming, it concentrates all the pollution. And unfortunately, it also has major negative effect because the amount of pollution that we are putting in the environment is so huge that nature cannot cope at so fast with such an input of pollution. And so there is algae blooms. But anyway, I call the company Alga Bloom um, as a remembrance of uh, the duty that we have to, to our planet. Anyway, that company, Alga Bloom, we did a number of experimentation. We developed five, six generation of bioreactors. And now we have two types of bioreactors, one for food, and one for the environment. 
See, and like when you're when you're speaking upon that, like because you live your life um, as a borderless man and as a man for the people, and how everybody is your brother, your sister, you know, like a, a family member to you, no matter where geographically they are in the world or what their contribution has been to your life. But if you strip all that down, even to like your religious beliefs, like where when you were explaining to me about how, you know, like even like with Einstein's quote about like where love comes from, like with the bond of love and the bond of like atoms and molecules that, you know, like LG is about like the most simplest form of how you live your life and what your life represents. It is astonishing that that is where it has become but because when you say that you have a connection with it because the first research was done in the same month and year that you were born that you're aware of and how you've decided to be able to live your life and under like the the philosophical belief and code that you do and what you've actually done in real time with your life like it is one of the most amazing connections that it comes down to that like this algae is the most simplest form of your fellow man and you are now helping that help the planet which is going to help every single person on this planet which is your ultimate goal is to be able to you know help everybody here and like that the the one thing that we all get affected by universally is climate change and pollution and like these forms like that it, it affects us all as a global community so you're, you're no longer in you know in the Congo, you're no longer in Laos. You're like you are the the world has really become like your global community that you're trying to instill a change on because if we can find a way to be able to like instill this technology that it'll have global impact and it'll affect the seven billion people on this planet. That's right. And to help in that process, um, you know the wind <laughs> that are surrounding the globe carry algae and if you notice if you spell a food on the floor you see very quickly the bacteria coming and working on that pollution <laughs> that we have left on the floor <laughs> or that spill that is on the floor very quickly algae who are in the air they are microscopic we don't see it with our naked eyes but this algae are actually coming and sitting on that food that is on the floor if you leave it long enough and right away the algae through natural selection one of the algae will survive and will thrive and that algae is actually starting to work on that pollution to break it down into particles that will become digestible to the next level of form of life. So basically the wind around the globe are already doing what is, that's why we, we are so blessed to be in a blue planet, in a beautiful planet in which everything has been taken care of. Even the excesses of our pollution, the creator has created an environment in which we have this chance to clean ourselves and the planet is continuously cleaning itself, purifying itself and the winds are taking care of that. And that, the reason I say that is that every part of the planet, we could have food, we could have clean air, 
clean water if you use the technology of algae because algae has been doing that anyway for <laughs> four, three, four billion years. So it's already available to all of us, each one of us. We just need to open our eyes and say, that, oh my God, since 1950, the first technology were tested, they were put aside in the early days. The first technology was done on the whole of the Carnegie really? in the US yeah. on photobioreactor. And they tested it and they were amazed that actually algae can do so many things. But at that time, fuel was so cheap and it had no value at all. So they saw no benefit because they were looking for fuel only and they saw no, no benefit. And that, but only about 20 years ago, then the US, oh, what happened is that they created, thanks God, depository collection of algae species of biodiversity. So they started to finance, the US finance, the centers all over the US of collection of algae species because they first discovered that, wow, algae actually is the raw ingredient of our planet. So they started to do that. In the 1976, 98, 1980s, they unfortunately stopped funding it. So some university maintained the collection live, but some other university without the funding, they let it go. So we lost a huge biodiversity of solution that were all existing on planet Earth. And today is the same thing with biodiversity. Every time we cut a forest, we are destroying a huge amount of the biodiversity. But anyway, as a result of this, quite a number of universities in the world have a collection of algae species. So if somebody says, oh, I have a problem of Parkinson, then we know there's an algae that will actually help treat the Parkinson disease. Somebody says, oh, I have a problem of biofuel. I need jet fuel. There's an algae that will give you jet fuel. If somebody says, I need a plastic that is biodegradable, there's an algae that will give you plastic that is biodegradable. And all that are being accomplished right now. And the science is here, the technology is here. Now we need politicians who actually are willing to put their eyes into a direction and say that, okay, let's take care of our humanity. <laughs> so that's basically as simple as that. And like, why do you think that we are so scared? Um, you know, and maybe this is a Western culture thing. And by way of that, I mean like, you know, like kind of Canada and the United States, but like, why do you think we are so scared to admit that like we what we have is already here like you know we are we are so stuck in like invention and we are so stuck in innovation that we want to be foreign from the environment that we are in to say like i've created something so more unique than anybody else because this doesn't even quote unquote seem from this planet you know like smartphones or cars for example or like computers like like we're bent on like this innovation but you know like there's innovation and there's invention that is just like you said like a play on what our planet is already doing and if we are really to cohabitate this planet you know with this planet 
we just we need to help it along to be able to help us because there's never been a time and i think this is one thing a lot of people don't realize like there's literally never been a time that we can prove scientifically that there's been seven billion people on the planet and we do nothing to be able to help the planet maintain that if anything we just take all the resources away from the planet that it needs to be able to allow seven billion people to be able to operate on this planet you know, but like we're so scared to be able to like walk down that road of just saying like we need to help this planet out. And the people that do, there's just so much criticism that falls and is bestowed upon them. Like they just give up or, they, you know, like like you were just saying, like the U.S. government stopped funding these programs. Or like when people are like, well, you know, gasoline is so cheap. Why do I need to be looking in, the, in this direction? You know, and then to me, like when you speak with that, when you're when you're talking on those lines and, you know, where it's like, that I think we need as a culture to get away of thinking that it's politicians who are going to bring that change because that's a failed system that we know is not going to work because politicians don't really have our best interest in mind. Politicians don't really have the planet in best interest in mind. And like we know these things. That system has been proven. There's no doubting that. And I don't doubt that there is some, but what I'm talking about is the majority of these politicians, they aren't supportive of that or else there would be real change. That change has already been there. What we need more is like of like the people like like Elon Musk, who's like willing to be able to step outside that box and say, if you guys are going to fail this planet, I will take over and I will do this. Yeah. You know, like if politicians fail a country, like look what he did in Puerto Rico. Look what he did in Australia. Like where he shuts his company down, takes a huge investor hit, you know, stock price dips, but he supplies power to citizens where the, the U.S., who controls Puerto Rico doesn't even do that or step in on their own. And that's the political landscape that we live in in today's day and age. And that is the problem because we we need to take back. We have this, this political system that is working outside of representing us in our best interest. Our best interest is that we live in harmony with this world around us because that living within that harmony of the planet brings harmony to us as people. But they're living outside of this system, but we have people who are wanting to be able to live back in harmony with that planet. And then, again, you get these people like Elon Musk who's saying, like, you know, electric cars should have been around for 50, 60 years already. Power walls should have been around already. You know, like, solar shingles should have been around already. You know, like, we can power communities and countries like this. I will prove it. I will go to Australia and build the biggest battery on the planet to be able to prove that this can be done. Like, you know, like... The, like these are the examples like of that you know we're clearly operating outside of relying on politicians to do the right thing because they will just continually prove that they won't and like this is where like people like you need like a, a stronger more powerful voice and you know like there needs to be a collection of voices like that and I know there's conferences that are held that don't get listened to I know there's meetings of you know people you know that have all the same similar ideas you know like UBC is doing research or you know like University of Arizona or like these places but it's like why don't we know you know but the one thing that we do know is like when you know like what I don't even know like what Bombardier is doing when they're building a new plane or, you know, like what <laughs> BP is doing when there's an oil spill. Like, you know, like we do all the things and they, they affect our planet like wholeheartedly. But, you know, where where's the publication of good? Like where's the publication of propagating like humanity? Like where's where's the publication of the anthem of the voice of saying like this is what we all need? And no, you don't have to be a tree hugger. No, you don't have to be a vegan. You know, you don't have to be some self-righteous individual to be 
feel to want change. Like this is what we should all want. How are you ever going to sit in your office thinking that you're a, uh, you know, just like the best guy on the whole planet, you know, on your 60 inch, you know, five 60 inch screens where you're trading, you know, stocks and all that kind of stuff. Like, like, how can you sit there and do everything you can to be able to take away from the fact, but not even willing to be able to participate in change where we are helping our planet? Like, we are all doing that but like what are we doing to be able to create that voice within inside ourselves you know and i think that's where like us we need to not form another government but we need to be able to just get more of our voices out there because the voices that we should have used like we used to use politicians the way that we use social media now like they used to be our voice we used to say you know and like you know one thing that like we're doing here is with this with this petition where we want to force these MPs to be able to talk and, you know, and actually pass these bills about eliminating, you know, um, direct advertising to children when it comes to sugar-based products. You know, but like we are forced to have to use these politicians as our voice, but that's the system that's always been there and that's the system that continues to fail us. But what we're starting to do now is, you know, like everybody around the world is you use that for social media. Social media like is the new government system. And that's what they're saying is also the problem with it is because it is such a powerful tool that we don't even know how to use it yet. But like why do I know that – I could go on Instagram right now and if I wanted to look at like top trending things, it would probably be some girl's butt, you know, but why isn't it like, you know, ways that we can be able to like help humanity as a whole? Like, why aren't we helping like our earth? Why isn't it like these technologies that you're talking about? Like, why don't people know about these things, you know, but if you go on a a new fancy way to do a bicep curl or, you know, like somebody jumping off something high or you know like it's just like this is what we're using this incredible tool for but we're forgetting to look at it like this is our new form of government like this is our new form of a collective voice why can't we all jump on band behind that and actually use technologies like what you're talking about so that like our kids can be healthy our grandkids can be healthy like our our planet can get back to a point of homeostasis and it can be healthy and when we've taken so much weight, like where would our planet be if we didn't step in and put our big heavy foot down? What other plants would we have? What other animal species would we have? Like, you know, if you're looking at, you know, small, you know, genetic variances like in the body and like our communities and in our earth take like 10,000 years for like evolutionary change for small incremental changes. Well, look how many hundreds of thousands of years we've been putting this negative footprint on the earth. What kind of subtle variations and changes like would there be if we decided to live a little bit more in harmony with this planet that we live on? How much more advanced we could be as a species instead of focusing more on our advancement means that I have a bigger screen on my phone or, you know, like yeah. I have a faster processor in this phone or, you know, my car, I've got this $500,000 car because like the $5,000 car that gets me from point A to point B just isn't as good. You know, like this is where our advancement is be, but like, like think of like where we could be like emotionally and like intellectually and, and physically if we just allowed the planet to be able to be and focused on enhancing, you know, planetary technology like what you're talking about is just helping the Earth do what it wants to do. Because imagine yeah. if you took like this LG technology and not looked at it as how to be able to combat what's going on, the negative footprint we have on this Earth. What if you? What if all that wasn't happening on this planet, but you still had that same technology and the mindset to want to innovate change? But to be able to advance species growth and expand species evolution, to be able to see like where this could go. 
Yeah. Because you wouldn't you wouldn't be genetically modifying anything. You'd just be speeding up the evolutionary process. Exactly. But we can't even start to explore things like that because we have to climb ourselves out of this deficit that we put ourselves in because now we have to talk about things like global warming because they're real. You know, in 2015, um, after we had developed the first technologies on algae in enrichment, um, we tried to see if we could get some funding um, from government. And um, first of all, they told us, well, it's not a land-based technology, so you are not qualified for the farming because the farm has to come from the land, um, so you are not there. Then you are not in the ocean, so you don't qualify for anything that has to do with ocean. You are growing algae in a greenhouse. So quite a number of uh, grants funding, we could not access to it. After some time, we ha actually, it has been so difficult to get funding <laughs> because uh, it, the innovation uh, looks like, how is it possible that a technology can do so many things? But we are not doing any of that. Nature has been doing it. We're just copying. But most people have great challenge in understanding and funding agencies that have been hell difficult to work. And even recently, I talked to some politician. Uh, a month ago, I ran uh, again, wrote emails. I wrote God knows to how many. <laughs> and there's always something that at the end of the day, it seems that people are not really, I mean, government people have not been waking up to the potential that nature knows how to speed up its cleaning. We just have to collaborate with nature and provide technologies who are going to speed up the work of the, because we are speeding the pollution, we need to speed up the cleaning. It, but it can go along in a sustainable way. So we don't need to create. Now, I just want to share with you um, long experiences. Consultants, need to show that they need, are needed. <laughs> so, for example, in Africa, the greatest challenge in the development of Africa that I have seen are the consultants themselves. Those who come to help the people create challenges in which there is always a black box. You know what I mean by black box? That means a part of the solution is never given. It's not always a completely independent solution. There's always, oh, you depend on me because I'm a consultant and I want to have more jobs next. So I always leave an empty spot for myself so that later on you depend on me. And that me, me, me is the insistent self, the greed, the ego of man that has come in and is always affecting the well-being of the overall. And that ego is a problem. Now, ego is something we need to some degree. 
ego is a form of preservation. When it's cold, I need to dress up. When I'm hungry, I need to eat. So the ego is protecting me, my well-being, so that I can preserve and sustain myself. I can live. So there is a limit of ego that is needed, an amount of ego that is needed. So we are self-protecting. We are not all going to kill ourselves for, with the slightest difficulty that we face. We need that ego that protects us from ourselves and from our environment. But when that ego passes a certain limit, then everything is become me, me, me. <laughs> One me is okay, but ten me is no more <laughs> good. So basically, the amount, the insistent self, when it's over the limit, that becomes actually a negative force. And some people call it the devil, devil <laughs> force, the negative force. Uh, they call it whatever negative names we have for it. But that's where humanity loses its true humanity, in which we don't see others as as important as ourselves so i'm saying that partisan politics has also played a role in that so we when when you you fall in love with humanity and you become a true humanitarian with like many people are in canada the amount of volunteers that we have in canada about five million volunteers that shows that the heart of canadian is extremely extremely pure and they are very sensitive to helping other people. Canada is a country, I, I have tears when I say the word Canada because I appreciate that. Traveling all over the world, I see this Canadian volunteering, doing all kinds of services, helping others, and they do it out of pure heart. And this makes me so happy to be a Canadian. But anyway, all that said is that the technology is available and more than proven this thousands of publications around environmental technology that would be beneficial to humanity. Algae is one of them, but it's very viable. And the reason is, as you said, it's available to everybody on planet Earth. There is algae wherever we live. It's a microbial world. So we are really safe if we address the issue and look at it in a more open way. So that's for algae. And Do you I, think that with with this algae, you know, like when you're looking at like it's the base of it, um, you know, base of like you know, like all these products like around the world, no matter really what you're looking at, like, do you see there being a solution using um, an algae-based system to be able to enhance like nutrient quality in the soil from over farming? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Oh my God, so fast, so effectively, and pesticides, we can have our own algae-based pesticides that are not harmful to the environment because they are made by nature and therefore they are very uh, sustainable and biodegradable and very healthy. We, you, God, the list of algae products is so long that See, you will like be astonished of what you can do with algae. Yeah. And there's like a like like the two biggest like if you shelved every other opportunity but you only focus on using like algae to be able to help cl like clean up CO2 you know to reduce like our you know like our footprint footprint of like CO2 on this planet and then you also used um, you know like the byproduct 
of that cleanup environmentally to be able to help with nutrient quality in the soil. Like those two things alone would literally change our planet from the minute those technologies were implemented for the rest of time. Like that's why, it would be yeah. it'd be incredible. That's right. Because those are like why, yeah. two of our biggest challenges right now are like food security. Like you know like why like you know hydroponic farming's gone where it's gone, you know, like yes it becomes like a space issue. But again, like we can't keep like, you know, trying to figure out ways to be able to make this like this soil become nutrient rich again when it's the furthest thing from. You know, and like look at the, some of the materials that we're using to be able to make this soil nutrient rich. But if we can help clean up greenhouse gases and you know CO two emissions and like help improve pollution in our planet and help slow down global warming. And at the same time you're also conquering another problem like adding nutrient value back to the soil. Like it just it seems incredible and socially yeah. irresponsible that we're not even exploring these options. And you're not the only person screaming to the world saying this is something that we need to do. Just these people who don't have our best interests or our planet's best interests in mind hold the keys to opening that door mm -hmm. and they're just not doing it. Yes. You know, I went as far as looking for the best, uh, for example, carbon capture centers. And I went, we signed contract agreements here, we have solution, we have this and that. And at the end, they said, well, we have a lot of money for infrastructure, beautiful buildings, equipment, but we don't have a penny to put into projects that will solve the problem. We have the building, we have now more wealth because now we have built more buildings, we have real estate, additional we have equipment we can now look for more this and that. but it's never actually addressing the problem itself it's always turning around it for personal and you know interests it's a self-interest it's not really the interest of the population and of the overall so that that's where the detachment comes in and see and, you know, with, with, like, that detachment, when you talk about it, like, I know, like, a big part of, you know, and this is, you know, in, in like, a lot of, like, business books or some of, like, the older ones, but, like, this concept about how, you know, like, you should never talk about what you want to do. You should just do it instead. You know, because when you talk about wanting to do something, you get a sense of accomplishment like you have already done it. That's right. So it takes the priority of doing it away. That's right. You know, so in, in a case like what you're talking about, like it just screams that to me. It's just like, okay, well, we've built a building. Okay, well, we have people in this building. Okay, we're talking about it. Like we're, we're round tabling this. Like give me your contribution. But when it actually comes down to just like what you did in the, in the jungle, you know, with like these little like um, with these like false waterfalls to be able to generate this hydroelectricity, it's like, yes, I could have been back in Canada in my cushy job, like you know, yeah. posting on or like writing letters to politicians, and that that's my contribution. But you just went and you just you implemented the solution. That's right. And like that's a lot of like what we're we're missing these days. It's just like an an actual implementation of a, a solution. Like let's just. Let's do it. Let's get there. Like, let's just stop talking about it and actually put some systems into into operation instead of it always just being like, well, I'm going to go on CNN and I'm going to talk about this. I'm going to post this on social media and I'm a part of this center and I'm a board member here. You know, but like, again, like it, it continually gets talked about. It's just that revolving door of no action ever being taken. That's right. Well, that, that's the reason for the last 30 years. 
I have not been looking for a job. <laughs> it's because I go and create the job. I go and develop the technology or the idea. And then when the boat is moving or the train is moving, everybody wants to jump in and be part of it. But um, I kind of felt that each one of us, we have this duty of taking things a little bit in our own hand and encouraging others to accompany, to participate and so on, because otherwise the job will not be done. So I felt that that's the reason for the last 10 years, uh, Susan and I, uh, my dear wife, she has accepted to go through enormous hardship. Um, marrying an inventor is a very great test. And I'm sure she will talk about it in the future. But um, so uh, actually we have tried to implement everything that I said that actually you can produce fuel, you can produce pharmaceuticals, nutraceuticals, and in the next pod, podcast we'll talk about the healing magic of Canadian spirulina. Well, you know, like maybe that's like a great segue into ending this and, you know, starting the, the last and, you know, I wouldn't say final um, segments of this, well, like I've you know, if he would grace us with his presence in the future too. But a, a part of like this this series that we're recording right now, getting all to this point of, you know, like you know, bringing authenticity to you know, like the topics that Soil talks about, and just knowing like like he's traveled the world, he's been around the world, he's conquered problems, he's so he's brought technology, you know, to individuals, to communities, you know, to provinces, to states, to countries, you know, into our global community. So, you know, like where we're at right now is we're going to move on to, uh, to part four of this series where, so it's going to tell us and explain to us, you know, exactly what he's working on now and, you know, how that's going to help us in the future. And, you know, getting back to helping his fellow man and this is going to be more from a health care standpoint so stay tuned